Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of the Fundamism Podcast, Quarantine Edition. I am your host, Paul J. Long, and we got a doozy here today. Before we introduce him or her, stay tuned. I'd like to shout out our sponsor, Charlie Hustle, been with us from the jump. I, of course, am wearing a Charlie Hustle right now. It's, it's Lenny the Cool, which I'd like to reference here in a brief moment when we get into a conversation with our guest. But if you don't have any Charlie Hustle stuff, it's cool, but uh, let's remedy that. Go to pauljlong.com uh, and swoop up your very own What's Good shirt, which is a Charlie Hustle Fundamism collab, or go to charliehustle.com to learn more. Without further ado, we have a KC legend, uh, one of the greatest long snappers in NFL history. Uh, while he is a Kansas City Chief through and through, and that's where his heart lies, I think he wrapped up his career winning a Super Bowl with another team. So we could dabble into that if we want to. But ladies and gentlemen, it's Kansas City's own Kendall Gammon. What's good, brother? Hey, everything's good. It's great to be here. Of course, I have my own Charlie Hustle shirt on the pit since I went to Pitt State down in Pittsburgh, Kansas, the Gorillas. And uh, I can't imagine why anybody wouldn't have a Charlie Hustle shirt, quite honestly. You know, it's, it's funny that you say that because uh, the family and I went on a walk yesterday and um, just around in Lenexa. And we saw no less than six different colored Kansas City Heart shirts by Charlie Hustle. It made me wonder, like, how many shirts does Charlie Hustle have out there in society? Because they are killing the game right now. Yeah, they really are. You know, of course, you know Chase better than I do. But I mean, you know, uh, one thing I've talked to him about, which I think is really, really unique, is he has mass produced individualism with his shirts, if it's if it's possible. I mean, it's really amazing to me. And then uh, he's managed to come up with a a message in every shirt almost that really means something to people when they're wearing it, just like what you're, you are with Lenny the Cool and, and me with my Pitt State. And I've got other Charlie Hustles and you just see it all over. And I just think it's ingenious, quite honestly. Now, uh, I couldn't agree more. It's obviously um, an extension of why I'm so or have such a strong affection for Chase and the Charlie Hustle brand. Uh, outside of, they have an amazing team as well. So uh, whether it's Patrick, who is uh, manning the stations and all things customer experience or service or, or Greg or Emily or Katie, I mean, everybody there is just top notch. Colin, uh, I love them to death. They are literally my team as well. So uh, Lenny the Cool, now you played with this guy, right? Yeah, exactly right. We had no face masks. I had the leather helmet, all that stuff. Exactly right. Yes. <laughs> but uh, you asked me. You asked me prior. Yeah, <laughs> you asked me prior to going on how old I was, so I thought I'd get that in there. Hey, uh, first question. We start with every guest. What do you do for fun, my friend? You know what? Uh, I just try to embrace life anymore. Um, some of the things I enjoy doing for fun is uh, I like to golf, although my kids are glad that I played football for a living uh, because uh, they would not have been getting Christmas presents had I played golf for a living. And then um, uh, I like to juggle. Uh, Juggling's part of something that I've been doing since uh, the eighth grade, and I think it's just a cool pastime. <clears throat> I have... Just a venture, ventured to guess, ask this question, what do you do for fun? <laughs> Over a thousand people. Mm-hmm. Kendall Gammon, you are the first individual ever to say, I enjoy juggling. So kudos and to really, And really, that's a crime. <laughs> at, the, at the very least, that's a crime. <laughs> it should be it punishable. However, <clears throat> something that you are uh, intent on fixing in society, because... One thing that I know about you uh, in my short experience and our uh, lifelong lasting friendship that has started most recently through an, uh, an introduction by Chase McAnulty of Charlie Hustle is that you're a speaker by trade now. And so we kind of, uh, we connected through that particular trade and curiosity, mutual curiosity of what we're doing in the space and how we're doing it. And I learned that one of the one of the experiences that you facilitate in your keynote is a, a juggling experience. Is that accurate, or am I just bringing this out of my butt? 
No, no, no. That is very accurate. And I like to have a good time with that. Uh, you know, for the, for the longest time, I didn't embrace it as much as I should have. But as I started using my juggling for some metaphors that I talked about with things, it just became fun. And, you know, really, uh, when people are used to getting power pointed to death all day long sometimes um, and just throwing, you know, figures thrown at them and everything, and all of a sudden uh, I'm up there juggling bowling balls, it changes the scope of things just a little bit because I generally ask, okay, who came here expecting to, to juggle bowling balls? And it's almost always nobody. Um, <clears throat> it is always nobody, quite honestly. And, uh, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter how big the crowd. Uh, I spoke to Freeman Health here. Uh, in December, down in Joplin, Missouri, had 150 of their uh, their their managers and, and um, basically the leadership team. Everybody got a, uh, a a scarf or three scarves rather, and we learned to juggle. And it was like anybody think that was coming either? No, and we had a great time. So you know, I try to change it up a little bit. <clears throat> Did I hear you say you you juggle bowling balls? I juggle bowling balls. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, balls, clubs, rings, bowling balls, torches, um, uh, machetes. We, we just talked about uh, scarves, cats. No, not cats, but <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, you know, just just all kinds of different things. <clears throat> now, uh, super relevant question related to what you talked about. Have you seen the movie Machete? I have not. Man, that's a bucket list item. You gotta, you gotta jot that down. I don't see a whiteboard back there, but I know you got one someplace. It's on the other side, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, machete. machete, yes. Um, the it actually stars the gentleman, and his name always escapes me. Hispanic gentleman that always plays an absolute badass. He's in some uh, Quentin Tarantino flicks. Uh, he's an advocate uh, of California and was just recently on a campaign to stay home. Gosh, his name escapes me. But as we progress in our discussion, it's going to come. You're going to see this gentleman and you're going to like, I know who that is. Gotcha. But uh, nevertheless, I digress. So uh, juggling bowling balls seems like I never played in the NFL, nor did I play football because I was too scared of getting hit. But I know one of the most common injuries of individuals that did play in the NFL are consistent back pains uh, and aches and uh, uh, degenerative disc uh, disease or disorder and all that jazz. So do you yourself have back problems as a result of you being crouched down uh, in the the three hole all the time? Yeah, you know, it's uh, to all those things, it's yes, yes, and yes. We check all the boxes. It is what it is. You know, I played 15 years, uh, 244 games. I played 218 straight before I broke my leg and wasn't bright enough until halftime to figure out it was broken. Actually, I didn't figure it out. Somebody else did. Um, but uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I am 51% disabled uh, by a neutral third party. Is actually the San Antonio Spurs doc that I got examined by for some benefits with the NFL. And I wouldn't do anything differently. Uh, I try to stay active. And I do stay active and the best that I can. I'm asked not to. I'm asked not to to run anymore or jog. Um, I do on occasion, but for the most part, I don't. And uh, you know, it, it just it is what it is. But uh, yeah, I you know, I always said because I was a long snapper. We can get into that in a little bit. But my job description was snap ball and get crap knocked out of you. And um, I, you know, I always said you can't have, have an ego and do what I do, did because that's what happened. And I just always tried to do it the right way because I figured it hurt it hurt a lot less if the if the snap was uh, where it needed to be. For sure. So, I mean, I'm no doctor, but uh, have these medical experts told you that maybe juggling bowling balls isn't good for your back? No, that there, there's not a problem there. No, that's, <laughs> that's not even close. I will say that they, they've, they've neither confirmed nor denied that it goes one way or the other. I have just extrapolated on my own um, that it, it can't be that bad for me. So uh, I'm, I'm okay with that one. I mean, it can't be that bad for me physically. Now, emotionally and mentally, people may look at me and wonder what the heck's going on. But physically, I think I'm all right. Listen, I've had that struggle my whole life. Uh, and I realized, I think it was, it was relatively... Um, shallow into the cat suit experience. Heck, maybe even before that, the corporate experience where I realized that there's 
no possible way to make everybody respect, love, or appreciate what I have to offer. So what I found is if you're having fun and you're doing the things that make you smile, then a lot of times people want to follow suit and they want to figure out what you're doing and replicate it. And you have a platform to actually help facilitate that in individuals' lives. But before we get there, let's, uh, let's hop in our time machine, brother. Let's, uh, let's head back um, to the days of, of, of old when you were growing up, you know, six feet of snow, hiking only on fence posts, uh, all that good stuff. Um, how did you get into football? How did football find you? Um, you know, when I was a big kid, I grew up in a small town, Lane, and moved over to Rose Hill, but I was always bigger than most everybody else. And I just, I enjoyed it for whatever reason, like, like a lot of guys. And um, I enjoyed every sport. I um, mean, you know, I played every sport you could think of. Um, did, and I've really, I've been a person who's, uh, Paul, who's always not only been not afraid to try anything, but wanted to try any, uh, anything I could. And so, you know, I, you know, I dabbled in the piano a little bit. I played the saxophone. I sang and danced. I was in the show choir. I was in the church uh, choir that, that traveled in summer sometimes. So uh, just all kinds of different things. And uh, it was just always me trying to reach out and, and do something. But I found a love for football. I did it pretty well. And you know, like a lot of guys, uh, kids, when you're younger, you know, the sky's the limit and you think you want to be professional in that or whatever it is. I mean, you know, I, I remember actually up until probably age seven or eight, I wanted to be a, a trapeze artist. So I was already drifting towards the circus in some way. Um, can't imagine this body being a trapeze artist at this point in time, but um, you know, that's just really how it came, it came about. I mean, I wanted to play pro professional basketball also, but I knew the, uh, uh, the slow guard who couldn't shoot uh, was not going to get drafted anytime soon. Go figure. It's interesting how that works. So, dude, so trapeze artist, juggler, uh, saxophone, uh, you must be the man, the world's most interesting man. I, uh, you're like a, a regular Bill Clinton over here. Easy now. <laughs> hey, if peeing your pants is cool, then call me Miles Davis. <laughs> You know what? Um, I have been. Uh, there have been some people that have described me as a little bit of a Renaissance man, just because I've I've, I've done a lot of different things, and, and um, um, I, I don't know. I've just I've, I've always been fascinated and curious with um, everything that's going on, and that's really what ultimately led me to wanting to speak to people. Also, is wanting to know, you know, how we tick as human beings, and and what what you know, pushes us and moves us to do things one way or the other, good or bad, because <clears throat> like you, I've been through so much in my life that's, uh, I wouldn't change, but, you know, some of it's pretty crappy, some of it's pretty awesome, and then there's just a whole bunch of, of in-between, and ultimately, you know, how we decide to deal with it on a, a, a daily basis and, and the meaning that we decide to give it, that's ultimately what creates our standard of living, our quality of life. For sure. 100%. And that's a topic that I want to get into significantly. Um, and something that you just said that really resonated with me, um, paraphrasing, but the more you breathe life into things, the more that they could take over, right? And so whatever you find uh, important to you or whatever you continue uh, to weigh heavy on your heart will ultimately find its way to you no matter what you see. Um, so ultimately, I want to get into that. You are a Pitt State gorilla. Uh, uh, and you, that's right. You actually, uh, not only do you, um, you, you attended Pitt State, obviously, and are a Pitt State alum. You have a strong affection for uh, them still in your heart today, so much so that you have been an unbelievable uh, fundraiser for Pitt State. Um, tell us a little bit about your affection for Pitt State and how you continue to help out. Yeah, well, Pitt State, and you know, like many people, the formative years in college and it's some of the best years of, of people's lives, and it was great years for me. And um, you know, so much so that actually, after I got after I retired from the NFL uh, one year, Pitt State asked me to come and, and work for them, and. Uh, I became the director of development for intercollegiate athletics, and then eventually became the uh, the, assist, the special assistant to the president. And 
I mean, it's basically raising funds for facilities and scholarships <clears throat> to begin with for athletics, but then it, it really covered the whole gamut uh, of everything at the university. And I report directly to the president and, you know, I've had some success uh, raising funds for the university. I have, I have uh, relationships that, that go, you know, basically all the way as far back as 1987. So that's a long time. And, uh, you know, I think because of what I did in the NFL, my name was kind of stayed out there for a little while, uh, that people kind of remembered me and I, I never left the consciousness a little bit. I don't know if that's good or bad for some of the people at times, but um, all the same, I had those relationships and it's it's been, um, you know, I've heard our president, Dr. Steve Scott, refer to it sometimes as mission work because he doesn't feel like he's working. This is his love. And uh, that's how I can describe it also because... You know, I'm getting paid to give back to my university and help them in whatever way I can. Again, not just athletics, but all across the board. And it's, it, it, it's, it's been a blessing. Well, obviously, as you know, um, I can relate to some of what you're talking about in the fundraising aspect in that uh, I mm-hmm. am very, very close to Noah's Bandage Project. Noah Wilson played a significant role in my life. And Scott and Deb Wilson, his parents, remain great friends to this day, along with their family. And, um, you know, it's a constant struggle thinking that you're being a burden to people and asking for money or or bandages or whatever it may be. And when I realized that um, you don't have to ask anybody for anything, if indeed you uh, tell a story that allows them to connect personally and emotionally um, and invite them to be a part, whether they do or whether they don't, that's their decision. But I think that we fall oftentimes into a trap of asking people for things. In the fundraising space, we ask people for money. But when you find a way to connect with people emotionally, then, then the ask actually just takes care of themselves because people want to be a part of what, of what you're a part of or what you've created. And obviously, you've created a lasting legacy at Pitt State, so I admire that a great deal. I do want to chat with you off air sometime, potentially giving me some tips on uh, outside of the emotional connection fundraising for Noah's Bandage Project, because I'm always all about that growth and development life. So you're snapping balls a ways back. What's the, how far is it? I'm trying to look. I, I generally have a football in here. I meant to bring one in. I don't, but um, uh, 15 yards back for punts and eight yards back for field goals or PATs. And you know what? Uh, as I always say, only in America can you do, can you throw a ball between your legs as fast and accurately as possible and get paid for it. And uh, it truly is a beautiful country. And you know, I really I came about that skill uh, in an interesting way, which was I was just curious how the ball uh, rolled out of the fingers when I was in, in college. I was a sophomore. My, my, I read sure so it was my third year in college, but I'm a sophomore, and I'm just messing around in practice. And a coach sees me and identifies that I can do this better than anybody we have on the team. And at the time, I'm an offensive lineman. I'm a starter. I've done, done very well. I'm, I'm happy with that. And I'm allergic to running in my mind. I want no part of it. So I don't want to run down more at the end of practice trying to cover kicks and whatever. But I got identified. I started doing it more and more. And lo and behold, that's ultimately what got me into the NFL. And so many things you can learn from that, Paul, but, you know, one being the fact of, you know, sometimes we don't even notice or realize what special gifts we have. And it takes somebody else outside uh, looking at from from different angles, which I talk about also seeing things from a different perspective that alerts us to what we have to give. And, you know, in this, in this point, or in this case, it was something as mundane as throwing a ball between my legs but I did make my living at that for 15 years and it did give me a stage and a platform to do some other things that I think are much more meaningful uh, than football. And so um, I think that's an important lesson to learn. It's, it's interesting the way I just phrased it to you. I've never phrased it that way um, when I've spoken. So this will be, this. Uh, we're, we're basically uh, developing content for me to speak. And I will expect, of course, for you to invoice me on this since you you were the one who, who drew it out of me. But uh, it's really amazing. We're blazing the trail on here, the Fundamentalism Podcast. Now, not blazing saddles, so it's not that kind no. of audience. So, uh, well, you know, thinking and reflecting on what you just said, you know, this is something that I've struggled with a lot, and I, I, uh, I kind of, I laid out a little preview earlier of this concept. I don't really, oftentimes, understand the value that I offer others, and. Um, like you, 
you know, you're out there speaking on a regular basis. And you and I both know that we've heard this thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Uh, public speaking and death are the, you know, top two fears of anybody out there. And so, you know, one thing that I've started doing recently in quarantine life is um, music matters a lot to me. So I'm playing, I'm doing these music videos every single morning. I'm not good, Kendall. Like, I'm not a great singer. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. I, I agree. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate the positive affirmations. Uh, you know, I'm a suspect dancer. Uh, I'm what they call a barroom dancer. Um, but I have a good time. And so every morning, I, a song finds me that has relevance or that makes me feel something. And so I, I do a brief, like, little two-minute karaoke sesh with a, coupled with a nice little message. And for me, it's, it's just... It's just jackassery. It's just me having fun. It's just me trying to bring a little levity to uh, potentially a tumultuous time for some. Right. And the number of people that have reached out with comments or appreciation, um, you know, uh, uh, identification of something that they're going through and how this two-minute video helped get them out of their head for a brief moment has been mind-boggling to me. So to your point, I don't realize oftentimes... Uh, that I offer folks value. Um, as you don't, you don't identify a skill that you have until somebody else tells you. And what I hope the audience and, and those listening today take from that is you're freaking wonderful. Like you have a skill set, you have things that you're great at, you have a niche, you have uh, uniquities about you that differentiate you from everybody else. And we oftentimes get so wrapped up on the crap that's not working or the stuff that we don't have or comparing ourselves to everybody else that we lose sight of all the stuff that we are and the awesome traits that we offer. So thanks for sharing that, Kendall. I, I, I can really relate to that. Um, you're in Penn State. Your, your career is, has ended. You're now transitioning to what's next. How did the opportunity in the NFL create itself? You know what? Uh... After I, after I retired after 15 years, and, I, and actually, I was asked to come back for another year. Whether I would have made it or not, I don't know. I think probably there's a good chance. Uh, but it was 15 years, and I felt like it was time to do something else. Uh, what I didn't realize at the time, actually, is what I was, that I was really kind of starting to crack a little bit emotionally. didn't realize it. But, you know, after that 15th year, I retired. I took a year kind of to myself, just kind of relaxed and figured that was okay. And then I got asked to come on the Chiefs radio broadcast and the network and, and did that for 12 years. I've done that the last 12 or 13 years. And actually, whether I do that again is, is, is up in the air right now. But uh, also what happened was me uh, starting with Pittsburgh State, uh, something that I've been with ever since then and will probably continue to be with until I retire. And um, it was interesting because it was just uh, such a different uh, pace of life, considering what I had been doing uh, for 15 years. I mean, let's let's face it, Paul. I I I, I played a child's game until I was almost 38 years old. I mean, my last year in the NFL, I was still running down the big tunnel in Arrowhead in front of people before they got there, so I could get up on an ice machine uh, around the corner and jump down onto people as they were coming over. I mean, who gets to do that as a 38 year old and just be a kid? And so. Um, I mean, silly things like that. So um, it was challenging also, though, and I may, have got, I may have diverged here already, and you'll find, and anybody listening will find that I diverge quite often, but um, what, what I realized was also um, I have some advantages from what happened in the NFL uh, because I opened some doors and tried to keep them open, but I was also 15 years behind because most everybody else goes into the business world right after college. Sure. I went into the NFL, and I think people are surprised to hear that sometimes because that's not what they expect. They're like, well, it just must be all wine and roses being the NFL, and there's a lot of great things to it, but there, there's, a, there's a lot of stress, and there's a lot of different things that come with it as well. Yes, absolutely. Well, I want to talk about um, that 15-plus-year career and uh, some of the experiences that, has, that have happened to you. Uh, Walk me through the day that you found out that you were going to play in the NFL. Uh, well, 
the the day I actually found out I was going to play was when I made the team my first year. Yeah, I, don't know if, I don't know if I've talked to you about this. I haven't heard this story. Okay, so I'm with the Pittsburgh Steelers. I've been through five and a half weeks of training camp, uh, which was somewhat pure hell because of uh, some emotional things I went through in terms of my performance as a, as, a, as a rookie in a couple of preseason games and how I dealt with that. But once I made the team, <laughs> I literally came back to my apartment and I dialed up Ping because they'd given us a number and I ordered some golf clubs And I, because we get them at a discount. I said, damn it, even if they cut me tomorrow, at least I got a discount on the golf clubs. <laughs> now, if that's not the most inane and bizarre story to tell from that. I don't know what is, but it's, it's exactly what happened. I was like, well, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm a, I think maybe it was me deciding to treat myself to something because I had just been through five and a half weeks of, of emotional uh, uh, strife, you know, dealing with the, the, the mind games that go along with what I was doing and, and, you know, the players and, and being in fights and, and, you know, not performing as well as I'd like and, and having all, all that happen. So um, as odd as that sounds, that's the first thing that happened. That's amazing. So did I hear you say, and forgive my ignorance, because we really haven't chatted much, um, and I really like the informal platform that this podcast gives us. So I don't typically um, research individuals a lot because I, I don't want to create a, uh, a narrative in my own head where I start to lead folks down a path. I want to I experience what the listeners experience. So you played at first with the Steelers. That's where you won the Super Bowl, and then you played with the Chiefs after that? Uh, actually, and we didn't win. Um, we played. Uh, we played. In, I played in Super Bowl thirty. That was my first four years. My next four years were with the Saints. Um, those were my character building years, and then my last seven were with the Chiefs. And so, and yeah, then back to the Super Bowl. Um, as I like to say, I feel like scores aren't important. It's about participation. <laughs> That's right. Hey, a lot of society feels that way right now too. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about the character building years. What's one thing? that you learned? What's a, what's a character building attribute that you acquired through those four years with the Saints? Uh, with the Saints? Well, you had to, you had to learn not to accept loss, but you had to learn to deal with it. You know, I played for Pittsburgh State University. Uh, we won a national championship my last year. We were undefeated um, the first four years. So I only practiced after one loss my entire career at Pittsburgh State University. Wow. One, one loss. And then I go to the Steelers, and we're in the playoffs all four years. We win the division twice. We're in the AFC Championship game twice. And we're in the Super Bowl once. So I'm just used to winning. That's just what happens. And then I went to New Orleans, and wow. And, and I still remember. <laughs> it's funny. I still remember my rookie. My, my, my first year with New Orleans, we're, we're two and five. And Coach Jim Mora, I had stayed, stayed that year because the players had rallied around him because uh, they the management was was toying with with letting him go and ride around him. So he was a, he was enormously stressed. We're two and five. We're playing at Carolina. We needed to win to still have a chance in the division. And I remember coming in after that game. Of course, we lost. Now we're two and six. And I just watched, and you know, I feel bad for him because the stress had just gotten to him so much. But he, along with some other coaches, if it wasn't bolted down, it was getting thrown. And so there's there's cans of Gatorade, everything all over the place, and I can see cans spewing out stuff. I just remember sitting there thinking, man, it was less than a year ago when I was playing the Super Bowl. What in the hell has happened here? And um, it, it really made you take, take pause and, and remember, you know, that basically – uh, you can't take success for granted and never do it. I don't think I did, but now is in a, in a point to where I was still, I was doing my job the way I was supposed to. That's why they brought me there when I was cut by the Steelers, uh, which is an interesting story as well. But man, you, you talk about dealing with some stuff and, and I had to learn to deal uh, with this, this new normal, which was, we were just, we simply weren't good. I mean, thanks. Uh, we were the well. That what we were the ain'ts, but that was after that. Had, that had come and gone a little bit. But uh, my goodness, it was interesting. And and you know, I, I've never told this story publicly, but it, <laughs> but it's, but it's 
everybody has a breaking point and everybody um, deals with things a different way. And and I felt bad for him, but it's a little bit humorous also in the fact that uh, coach Jim Mora, who I always thank for continuing my career because I was cut by Pittsburgh. They brought me in in New Orleans but on Saturday night before that Carolina game, he was talking about everything. He gave the speech. And then at the end, he quoted Winston Churchill. And he's like, don't ever, 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 sideways eight, ever give up. And then we lost that game on Monday. We come in. He goes, he goes I just want to let you all know that uh, uh, I've decided to retire and I'm done. I was like, <laughs> I'm like, what, what, what happened here? Now, I'm not making fun of him because this this is a guy who's very decorated, has a very decorated career. Uh, I think he's a former uh, Marine and and just everything, but it's kind of humorous. It just shows that everybody has a breaking point, but it's it, it's it's kind of funny. But th- those years, I mean, that's when Ricky Williams was uh, when Coach Ditka played for him for three years, and he traded everybody for Ricky Williams. So now you got Ricky in a wedding dress and. And you got him giving interviews with his helmet on, and you coach. You got. I mean, <clears throat> it was it was a cast of, char- a cast of characters. It's pretty interesting, but um, even through that, uh, you could find some good. At the time, I didn't do a very good job of it. My focus was not where it needed to be. I mean, I can remember coming home once uh, and talking to my wife at the time and saying, "You know what? If if I if I decide to retire, are you okay with this? Because I hated my offensive line coach." I, there's some other things that were going on I did not care for, uh, but ultimately I was creating that 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 uh, I was creating everything that was going on because how I choose to look at it is how it was, and and I think once I was able to start looking at it the different way of which is you know I, I'm getting paid much more than I deserve I'm supporting my family I'm doing something that that almost everybody in this world would, would love a chance to do which is play professionally or do something professionally at the highest level whatever that is. And once I tried, once I started looking at it from that that side of things, I think it started to change a little bit. Now we were still bad, uh, but all the same, um, I think those were some important years for me that needed to happen, even though they weren't fun at the time. For sure. Well, there's so many things there to unpack. I mean, first of all, they just they just posted on Twitter and through the NFL draft. Of course, that Ricky Williams trade is still uh, one of a kind in terms of everything that the Saints gave up to make that happen. Uh, Absolutely nuts. Uh, But the second thing that you said was uh, the coach that that really resonated with me or struck a chord was the coach that everything had to be bolted down. And so you're, it was a coach, right? That, that okay. So um, I grew up in a small town called Osawatomie. Oh yeah. uh, I was a big basketball guy, uh, cut my teeth playing um, out in fifth grade. Uh, on the blacktop, they called me Airball Paul. Uh, never played before. Uh, went out, saw folks playing basketball. I had my soccer Diodoras on, and uh, I just had to. I, I knew that fresh to the neighborhood, fresh to this town, I had to create friendships, and the only way to do that was to uh, to invite myself on the court and try something new. So I said, "Give me that rock," and I throw that ball right over the backboard, and was forever uh, known as Airball Paul. Now, throughout the years, I got a little bit better, uh, became a, a shooter. Um, not super great. I mean, not super talented, but I can handle my own. When we got to high school. Uh, our team, the Trojans, were notorious for not winning games. And so you said at Pitt State, you lost one game. Uh, whereas we in Osawatomie, when I started to come up, um, I think the three years prior to me going to Osawatomie High, we hadn't won a game. Uh, so my best friend, John Stoner, who you'll get the opportunity to meet and thinks very highly of you. We chatted the other day. You were in the yeah. Zoom call. <clears throat> he was an absolute stud playing basketball. I mean, 1,000 points in two years at Drexel when he uh, transferred from Osawatomie to, to Drexel 1A school. Ended up playing for Avila. But uh, we're in the midst of this terrible losing streak. I mean, we're not winning games. John gets his first ever opportunity uh, in a varsity game. And he, and he is, he is fantastic, but he's nervous, right? So he gets up to the foul line and Kendall (laughs) bounces that ball three times, sets for the shot. He shoots it. And I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't land, but right in the middle of the paint. I mean, it makes it halfway to the goal. So he's embarrassed. Everybody's laughing. He gets the ball back from the referee takes his three dribbles, 
sets up to shoot. Second shot hits the corner of the top of the backboard. I mean, poor guy is just, this is his first experience in a varsity game. Halftime comes around. And of course, everybody thinks it's hilarious. Uh, We're down by who knows, 20 points. And I'll never forget our coach at the time said, you guys think this is funny. He picked a piece of chalk up and he throws it as hard as he possibly can in our minds and our memories. And I think it bounced off of something and hit John Stoner right in the eye. <laughs> and it was one of my best and most memorable childhood moments. So uh, I understand and can relate to the coach that throws things, not always the most effective way at, uh, at skilling people up, but memorable nevertheless. Yes. <laughs> so, all right. Now, one thing that we've kind of skated around a little bit and um, is super relevant in this moment right now, and will always be for that matter, is uh, mental fortitude, mental health. Mm-hmm. I had the opportunity recently to do an event for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And um, one of the challenges that I faced in my career is with this fundamentalism concept that's very fun and lighthearted. I've branded it that way on purpose. Um, that sometimes I don't know that people see that there's substance behind it. Like it's not just silliness, right. zaniness. It's, it's very deliberate in trying to focus more on what gives you strength as opposed to the things that don't. This coronavirus is going to have a long tail in how it plays with mental illness and health. And so we as society, we typically only see, uh, or rather we, we only uh, feel what we experience. And so as most of us are quarantined right now, we're not getting to see individuals on a regular basis. And so we're really high, highly sensitive to the masks and how we're getting groceries and uh, hand sanitizer and toilet paper and finding a vaccine and a cure. But one thing that's not getting enough run, in my own personal opinion, is conversations about mental fortitude and the long tail that this is going to have in creating fear and anxiety and depression amongst individuals trying to find a way to make a living or trying to figure out how to get along with their spouse because this is the first time that they've had to be with them so much. You're an individual that has battled, um, thrived, uh, and regressed many times in your life from a mental uh, fortitude standpoint. Walk us through some of the things um, that you've battled in your life uh, and that you tell folks or at least uh, folks experience with you when you get the opportunity to speak with groups. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I talk about emotional strength, emotional communication. Emotions really are what drive us as human beings. And, and, you know, Paul, when we're attentive to how they affect us individually and collectively, our abilities to succeed, I think, increases dramatically. And that then is means that the team's uh, chance to succeed increases also or those you lead. But, you know, you know I've, I've dealt with a lot of different things, no doubt about it. You know, and I think maybe what you're driving at that we've talked about a little bit, I don't remember if we have or not, but I talk about it openly when I speak, which is, you know, I can remember, you know, basically being abused um, emotionally and, and even lightly physically uh, as a kid from age 10 to age 16, I'm, I, I tell the story uh, of my mom backing me into the corner of, of the laundry room and hit me in the head. And I was 16. I was, you know, six foot three by then and, and, and pretty decent size. So physically, while it hurt a little bit, emotionally what it was doing to me um, and the, deg- the degradation and everything that was tough. And I dealt with that, some of that stuff before in my life. And I dealt with the yelling and, and uh, just belittling and stuff from her always just when it was us two. So it was hidden um, on a daily basis. Uh, and and it, it was, as you can imagine, it really gotten old. And um, I can remember that, that time in the laundry room where after she backed me in the corner, um, she, I, I basically backed her back up and I didn't touch her, but I communicated to her that this would never happen again and that, that she couldn't do this anymore. And um, 
ultimately that day, I made a decision emotionally that I was going to change the what I allowed in my life, uh, both, uh, I say emotionally, but also physically. And, and um, I, I just finally stood up for myself. And I think that sometimes emotionally, we don't stand up for ourselves enough. I know I hadn't. And sometimes we need people. I, I was very fortunate. I had an older brother and an older sister who at times stood up for me or protected me a little bit from her at times, even when they didn't know they were, they were. And I'm aware of that. But so <clears throat> I dealt with that. And I also dealt with, you know, my mother and father fighting on a constant basis. Um, it had, like a lot of kids, I'm no different. And they were dealing with um, basically money issues and stuff like that. And, and hearing that over and over again, along with this other stuff, you know, I can remember, uh, you know, walking into my brother's room in the basement uh, and, and picking up the 12-gauge shotgun uh, when they were fighting upstairs and just thinking, okay, this was Sean. And... I, I, you know, for, I briefly considered a permanent solution to what was a temporary problem. And you know, that's the thing with suicide is uh, with suicide, we people decide that the pain of living is worse than the pain of dying. And of course, it's not. But nobody's in their right mind in, in my uh, in my recollection when that happens. And that's why I speak about it openly. But you know, those are those are some mental things. I, I may have gone too far. I don't know if that's where you want me to go. But that's stuff that I almost always talk about, uh, be it at, during uh, the talk that I give or at the end when they, they when people start to ask questions because it just comes up. I mean, this this isn't Kevin Bacon's six degrees of separation. This is this is one degree of separation. But I've I've never given a talk where I didn't have somebody come up to me and talk to me afterwards. Either they've dealt with something personally or they know somebody and. Um, I, I think I share all this and I share this with you since you brought it up because basically if I talk about it, I believe that it gives others permission to understand maybe more and talk about it and maybe get help because they see from the outside, they see this guy who, uh, you know, ha had a family, two kids, uh, successful on the field, doing all the different things. Just, it just really looks perfect. And, and ultimately it, it, it's not. And the only way they're going to know that is if I let them know what happened in my life, if I get real with them. And that's what the emotions are in, in this world. You know, Brene Brown, I'm a big fan of, she talks about vulnerability and you know, she talks about, you know, uh, shame studying too and jokes about it, but, but that's because we all feel some sort of shame. But the vulnerability is the biggest thing in life. I mean, you know, ultimately, uh, you've got to let people know you and you've got to put yourself out there. And that's not the easiest thing to do just because you say it, I say it, or we talk about it. it, it it's, it's tough, but I've found in, in all the talks that I've given uh, that it does make a difference. And, and some of the stories I could tell you for what people have come up and talked to me about afterwards are just, just uh, mind boggling. Well, you had mentioned that uh, you weren't sure if that's where I wanted you to go. You know, that's, that's one of the concepts that I hope people will take away from interactions uh, through fundamentalism is that um, wherever you go, that's where we're supposed to be. And so I typically don't have an agenda. Um, right. I knew that we had talked prior to about a lot of things going on uh, or historically in your life. And I thought that you're a highly respected individual in, in hearing that story, whatever, uh, to whatever extent you want to share, would definitely help. One of my goals um, before I'm dead and gone is to help start to create a shift where it's cool to ask for help. Right. And so what I mean by that is uh, when you talked about the degrees of, of separation with Kevin Bacon, every single person listening to this podcast right now either has thought about suicide or knows somebody directly in their circle of inf influence and they're clo a lot closer than you think they are yes. that has thought about it. I myself have thought about suicide. Now, does it mean that I would that I would go through? Does it mean that I'm going to take that next step? No, but I think it's human nature sometimes to look at where you are and say, would it be easier if I didn't have to deal with this? And it's a completely different aspect to take that thought to that next level. 
But why people take that thought to the next level is because of that shame and that, that fear and that anxiety of what people think of them. And I want the opportunity to be able to help shift mindset to say, dude, it's cool. Like you're going through it. I'm going through it. No matter what you've been through, somebody out in the world has got it worse. And quite honestly, they're handling it just a little bit better. Lean on me. If I could be that for you, please be it. Because one day is going to come where I need you, Kindle. And I think ultimately, I hope that those of you that are listening to this right now, I'm talking directly to you. You could hear Kindle's story or what I'm saying right now and hear us say that you're not alone. And what you see as perfect in other people is not always what it's like on the other side. Do you live your life? Stop comparing yourself to everybody else and everything else. Live your experience. And if you need help, somebody is willing to help you if you're willing to get real and vulnerable. So, uh, man, Kendall, I, I, can't, uh, I can't express my gratitude enough for uh, your willingness to be authentic, genuine, and vulnerable because a lot of people can learn from that. So, uh, one last question that um, you know, I'm curious. Go ahead. Before we get there, I remember that thought, but I, I want to take this full circle a little bit, which is we, we talked about me juggling bowling balls. And I don't juggle, I don't juggle them just to, for it to be a circus act, although it is, and it's unbelievably entertaining. You should all hire me. But uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's I do it for this reason, which is you know one of my hashtags is no one is a bowling ball. And what I'm talking about there is when you look at a bowling ball, no matter how you turn it, uh, no matter what angle you look at it, it is perfectly round, it is shiny, and it, it is, is one perfect sphere. It, it is perfect no matter how you look at it. And then there's only one way to see it. But the fact is, as people, um, there's three parts of our life. We have our individual, we have our family, and we have our professional. So there's three parts to our life. And the fact is, they're, they're all different and they're never perfect. And so that's my whole thing with no one is a bowling ball, which is no one is perfect. And if somebody looks perfect in my mind, that's a sign that they, they might need help. And then if you're trying to be perfect, um, that's a sign that maybe some other things are going on. And I say that only from experience, which is I try to make sure that I look perfect to everybody and everything for so many years and I did a hell of a job for about 47 years and then I cracked. And the fact is that everybody will eventually if they try to be perfect all the time. So I try to give people permission to not be perfect by teaching them to juggle with those scarves. Also, so we're going to juggle three scarves. We're going to have a good, good time and, and you're going to fail. But just because you fail doesn't mean you're a failure. We're going to have a good time doing this, trying to, to learn to do something. And, and, and I think that by doing that, it gives people, or hopefully it, it, it gives them an understanding that you don't have to be perfect all the time. And then the other thing I take into that also, which is I ask, when I'm teaching them to juggle those scarves, after I've juggled the bowling balls, obviously, because it would just be too hard to bring bowling balls all along and give them to everybody. So we have to use the scarves. but. I, I give them those scarves and, you know, there's a group that thought this sounded cool. There's a group that's like, okay, here we go. And there's a group that was just like, you know what, this is, this is stupid. What, what the hell are we doing this for? And, and, and the fact is what I try to get through to them also is the fact of before they even started juggling, their experience was halfway there and already determined by what they decided it was going to be before they ever, ever even did it. And basically that's the power of our mind and what our mind does. Get in focus equals feelings equals your quality of life. What you focus on is what you're going to feel. And what you feel is basically your day-to-day -day life, your quality of life. And that's what I was trying to get through with, with the, with the, the bowling ball situation and, and the scarves and that whole uh, thing. So, I just wanted to get that in there. I don't know how I want to use that, but that, that's, that's some of my, my metaphors that I like to, to use. Oh, that's perfect. If you wish to see the truth and hold no opinion for or against, what you just obviously um, communicated is the self-fulfilling prophecy. So whatever you have your mind up that you want to see, uh, that's exactly what you'll see. So uh, very relevant, very helpful. I greatly appreciate that. Um, in closing on that subject, 
there are two people in this world. There's the person that you are and there's the person that you reveal yourself to be. Yes. And so as you see individuals on, on the gram, as the kids call it, or Facebook or TikTok or whatever it may be, you're seeing the version of them that they want you to see. Right. So ultimately, you're the same. Uh, you're exposing the self, the one person, the one true self, in your, in your opinion, of right. yourself that you want others to see. So what resonates with me most and the people that I connect with the most are the individuals that are willing to be real and authentic and vulnerable because there's power in that and there's not enough of them out there. So you're one of them, my friend. I greatly appreciate it. One of the things I want to touch on before we uh, wrap up, I'm not great with time. You know, I cracked a joke earlier about you playing with Lynn Dawson. That was a joke. Um, Then you talked a little bit about Ricky Williams. Uh, I love that guy coming up. My favorite NFL player of all time is Derek Thomas. Uh, I physically weeped and was debilitated for days uh, when he got into his car accident. So first of all, forgive my ignorance, because again, I'm terrible with time. Did you play with Derek Thomas? I did not. Actually, I was a free agent that year, and his accident happened before free agency was to begin, but then he passed away like a day or two right when free agency began. So the Chiefs naturally were dealing with that. And I remember them giving me a call and saying, listen, we're interested in you. We'd like to bring you in, but you know what's going on. I said, well, naturally I do. They said, well, so just so we've got to focus on this. And of course, made perfect sense. And I couldn't believe they even called to say that because in my mind, but but still. So I remember vividly, but I played against him a lot. Uh, I just never played with him. Well, I, I remember vividly in my mind, not just that day when I caught wind of, of him um, getting into that accident, which I think was on the way to the Pro Bowl um, uh, to, to watch, uh, not to, to play in. Um, but I, I, you know, I've, I've never been great with facts, so I could be way wrong on that. Um, I remember the, the Chiefs um, created an opportunity and experience for those to, because he was such an... Uh, um, a staple in the community for uh, memories um, and uh, amazing play that they actually created a wake at Arrowhead mm-hmm. and had an open casket and allowed people to come in to Arrowhead, walk down on the field to view and to pay their respects to Derek Thomas uh, and then to exit. And I, I, uh, I'll never forget that day. I actually, um, I, I went through that experience. This is the longest way to ask you, who is uh, your most impactful or memorable NFL player? The one person that you really either idolized, look up to, or enjoyed? Oh, wow. That is a tough question. Um, I grew up loving the Cowboys and really liked Roger Staubach. That was just because, you know, he's the QB of America's team at the time, which I can't believe I can say that now, especially since I played the Steelers later on. Um, but uh, you know what? It sounds like kind of kind of a homer because he was from Kansas City. Uh, but I've described this guy um, this way my 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 whole life that I've known him, and he was a teammate for uh, six years, and that's Trent Green. Um, I, I I describe Trent Green Green as the best human being I know. Uh, as a father, as a friend, as a leader, uh, as, as a husband, um, as a teammate, just everything he did was on point. Even, you know, as a, as a QB, you're expecting, you know, as a QB, it's your team. I mean, you, you, you talk, that's just how it kind of is. And even as he left teams, as I've talked with him, he feels this calling and this need to call and check on former teammates to see how they're doing. And I know most people don't do that. Um, we all would maybe think we should or, or think about it, but but I just know from being around him some that he does that, and uh, he's 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 just a quality individual. Um, I was at uh, a Hall of Fame induction for it was here a few oh for Morton Anderson, but the same year that Morton Anderson went in. Um, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, 
the QB from St. Louis that replaced uh, Kurt Warner. Warner. Sorry. So Kurt was going in there. I remember somebody asking me uh, uh, about that. And, and Trent was there for that. This was, this was all separately, but somebody's asking me and I was just like, you know, it's interesting that, that Kurt's up there. Uh, but I know Trent's here, of course, because they were teammates and he took over him. But I, I'll, I'll tell you this. I, I've, I've always believed this, which is if Trent doesn't blow his knee out, I think Trent has that career that uh, uh, that was afforded the opportunity to um, Kurt Warner. To what's his? Kurt Warner. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, Kurt Warner. And I, I've always espoused that. But what's what was interesting to me is Kurt said that very thing on stage. Sat there and he, he looked at Trent and said, listen, Trent, he goes, it's not lost on me that this could very easily be you up here. And I, I watched, I was, I was a few seats down from Trent, or, or maybe I saw it on the big screen, but um, just how he handled that. And I think he knows that also. He, he would never say that. But I mean, just everything he does, I mean, his, his faith, um, I, it's just... I'm, you know, I'm going at length at this one, but th- th- this is just truly a, a good person. And um, I think that's pretty cool. Cool. Thanks. That's somebody that's definitely uh, I've always looked up to. I agree. An individual that not just has impacted um, Kurt Warner's career, but the city of Kansas City uh, touched you and so many others. Uh, I think everybody probably has to some extent that's ever interacted with them a Trent Green story. And I'll never forget, we reached out to Trent to ask him to be a part of the Noah's Bandage Project Molly Lama Celebrity Pickleball Game. And um, we mentioned earlier about touching people's hearts and connecting at a genuine level. I recall going upstairs, you know, they have this overlook at, at Chicken and Pickle, and they had an open bar up there, but not one person was up there at this time of the night. I go up there to get a drink, and who's there but Trent Green? And... Uh, I introduced myself and I said, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart uh, for doing this, not knowing us, but knowing that pediatric cancer uh, needs a little bit of help and awareness means a lot. And he goes, looks at me right in my eyes and he goes, did I hear that you created this with, with Chase and, and Kelly Aldridge of Chicken and Pickle in just under three months, in, in about two months? And I said, yes, sir. He said, brother, that is a phenomenal feat. And then he goes on to tell me, some of the trials and tribulations that he's had in fundraising. Kendall, yeah. fast forward several months later, I'm in the airport in Minneapolis and I see Trent Green, one person down from me at Panda Express. And I go, Trent Green, what are you doing here? And we start chatting. I go and uh, I, I, I get a book and I you know write a little personalized note in it, fundamentalism book. And I I go and I give it to him. I said, man, I don't know if you read. I just want you to know that you made an impact on me that day. And I greatly appreciate you. He goes, I read all the time, Paul, and it means the world to me. So we board and he's sitting in first class and I'm sitting in Delta Comfort, Comfort Plus, the seat right behind him, just the universe energy, right? Right. And so I say to him, the universe planted me here to give you as many wet willies as possible. <laughs> and he gave me the most nonchalant um, uh, blow over cackle that you've ever seen. Went back about his day and we never chatted again. <laughs> it was the best. I love that guy with all my heart. Great person. Great story, Kendall. Great podcast, buddy. You are uh, an immense talent. Um, just more so as a human being than anything else. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to connect with you and share your story, your vulnerability. If people want to know more about Kendall or look to have you at an event, where would they go? Basically go to kendallgammon.com and there's a contact submission form page. And, uh, you know, if you send something, you'll get something back from me within 24 hours. That's just how I work. And I say that only because every time I speak, I give that at the end for some things I've talked about. And I always let them know that it's 24 hour contact time for me. And then uh, for them, if it's other things we need to talk about, they get a phone number as well. But uh, in general, you can get, you can get a hold of me through my website or the gram. The gram. What's the gram? What's your handle? Uh, I was kind of, I think it's Kendall Gammon 83. All right. Well, we'll find you buddy. Ultimately we'll put it on uh, in this post as well. Hey, man, uh, you're a true gentleman. You're awesome at what you do. Keep up the great work. And as the great Ray Finkel once said, 
laces out. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you as always for tuning in to this week's Fundamism podcast. We couldn't do it without you. Uh, you guys are lifting me up. You're lifting each other up. You're lifting Kindle up. Continue to spread the word of fun. Go create the word uh, and, and not just fun in your life, uh, but fun in the lives of others. We'll catch you on the flip side. Until then, deuces. Deuces.